Well, so thankful we're still able to be together uh, online and have a wonderful time of worship. Now, as we get into the Word this morning, I'm thankful for so many of you who are reading through the, uh, the New Testament with us uh, this past week. We've gotten into the book of 1 Corinthians, and that's where we're going to jump in this morning. Paul is writing to the Christians in Corinth. They're both Jews and Gentile. It's a young church, and it's also an immature church. And you can see that in the first three chapters when Paul has to twice uh, address the issue of division in the church. And the primary source of the division is that these believers are arguing over who they follow. They followed Paul, or they followed Apollos, or they followed uh, Peter. And Paul has to address that issue, and he has to remind them that they're followers of God, not followers of men. Men are just the laborers. They don't produce the results. It's God who produces the results. It's God who saves. It's God who causes the growth. Well, Paul, uh, in, in chapter 3, which you should have read on Monday if you're reading through with us, Paul, uh, in four short verses here in chapter 3, Paul kind of corrects their focus by giving a very sobering reminder of the importance of proper service as he describes a future event. And we're going to look at that event this morning in, in uh, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians and verses 10 through 15. Paul says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. And that's true of Paul's ministry. He frequently started churches, and others would come in and build on that foundation. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Well, Paul's talking clearly about the work of church leaders, those who have the responsibility of shepherding the church or, or the body of Christ. And, and he's saying for us as leaders, we have to be careful how we lead. We are to build up the body. We're to grow the body up in, in the knowledge of the Lord. And, and we're to recognize that Jesus is the foundation. The church is his bride. It's, it's not our church. We're simply the leaders that he's put in place to guide or to shepherd the flock. Now, what does that mean to you if you don't have the position of being a pastor or elder in the church? What does that mean? Well, we can't dismiss this passage and say this only applies to, to pastors or leaders. Paul is talking to everyone who's a part of the body of Christ because we all have the responsibility of building. And you see the caution there in verse 10, the last line of verse 10. He says, let each one take care how he builds. You know, I have uh, in my years have built a few houses, not only my own, but but some other houses as well. And in the process of building a house, you have to keep in mind there's going to be an inspection. There's a foundation inspection and a plumbing inspection, an electrical inspection, framing inspection, a final inspection. There are all these inspections. And knowing that inspections are coming, you have to be careful that you build properly. Well, verses 12 through 15 describe an inspection process. It's a future event in which every believer is going to participate. And the picture here in chapter 12 through 15, Paul is describing what's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, you don't see the term judgment seat of Christ mentioned here, but it's clear in Scripture that a time is coming when every believer 
will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In Romans 14, we were in the book of Romans last, uh, the last few weeks. Romans 14, he says, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Each one will give account of himself to God. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So Paul is describing here that this is the third place in Scripture that specifically events at the judgment seat are mentioned. Paul is describing here what's going to happen. Now, the first thing I need to be sure you understand is that the judgment seat of Christ that Paul is talking about here is not the same thing as the great white throne judgment. You'll see that described in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Uh, the great white throne judgment happens at the end of the millennium. Just to give you a quick timeline, there'll be the rapture of the church, after the rapture of the church, and that's at the point where this judgment seat of Christ occurs for believers. But after that, uh, here on earth, there'll be the tribulation. After the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ for a thousand years on the earth. And then, when that millennial reign is over, before the new heavens and the new earth are made for us, in that time period is the great a white throne judgment, and that judgment is for all those who don't believe. And all of those who don't believe in Christ will be condemned at the great white throne judgment. So the judgment seat of Christ that we're reading about is a different judgment. Um, there won't be any unbelievers at the judgment seat of Christ. It's just for the church. It happens right after the church is raptured. First Thessalonians 4, Paul describes the rapture of the church, the trumpet call of God, the, the voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we'll join them and meet Christ in the air. We'll go with Christ. We'll go through the judgment seat of Christ. Then we'll also have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And following that, while the tribulation is occurring here on earth, following that, at the end of that time of tribulation, we, the church, will return with Christ in his second coming. All right, but let's get into the judgment seat of Christ. How is it we're going to be judged, and what are we going to be judged for? Let me say first and foremost, if you're not familiar with the judgment seat of Christ, let me answer your, your most burning question. No, you're not going to be judged for your sin at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, we hear the word judgment, and it concerns us. We think it's going to be about our sin, but this judgment is not about whether or not you're going to get to enter heaven. If you've trusted Christ, your sins have been forgiven. You have received, you remember the doctrine of justification, you've been justified, not only have your sins been forgiven, but you've received the perfect righteousness of Christ, so you're already qualified for a home in heaven. That's not what this judgment is about. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5 and verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, and will not be condemned, he has crossed over from death to life. And then Paul, in, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Part of the confusion over what happens at the judgment seat of Christ is that word judgment. You know, in the Greek, uh, judgment can have two different meanings. It can be condemnation, but it can also be uh, the giving of rewards. At the great white throne judgment, you will have non-believers who will be condemned. At the judgment seat of Christ, you have believers who are going to be rewarded. That's the difference in those two judgments. 
Now, the Greek word for the judgment seat, if you looked up in Greek, those other passages in Romans and 2 Corinthians where it specifically mentioned the judgment seat, the Greek word is the bema. It's spelled B-E-M-A, but pronounced bema. The bema seat, that word comes from the Isthmian Games, the, the early Olympics or the ancient uh, Olympics. Contestants would compete and judges would sit on the bema seat to be sure that every contestant completed according to every rule that that game required. And at the end of the contest, the winners would come to the Bema to receive, back then the award was not a trophy, but it was a, a laurel wreath or, or crown, if you will, that was placed on the head of the winner. Now, you may have heard that part of the judgment at the judgment seat of Christ is that believers are, are judged uh, in that all of our sin is put on display for everyone to see, and we're judged for any sin that we didn't confess. No, that's not true at all. Certainly, when you sin as a believer and the Holy Spirit convicts you, you need to confess and repent. But if there are sins that you have not confessed, those are not brought up at the judgment seat of Christ. Why? Because Christ's work on the cross was complete. If you're in Christ, all of your sin, past, present, and future, has been forgiven. Now, let me pause here and say this. I'm certainly not trying to say you don't need to worry about your sin. Uh, you know, you've heard me say many times about the justification and sanctification process that a true believer cannot willfully just go on and sin. A true believer can't say, well, uh, I've confessed my sin. I've trusted Christ as Savior. I can live as I please. It doesn't matter if I violate God's law. Uh, I can do whatever I want. No, we don't do that. As believers, when we sin... Although our sin nature, capital S, capital I, capital N, all, all our sin has been forgiven, we still will from time to time sin, little s, little i, little n, and we need to confess those sins. We need to repent from those sins. And, and here's why, and this does relate to our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. There are serious temporal and eternal consequences to our sin. Let me just name a few. Uh, one serious temporal consequence is that your fellowship with God is broken. Uh, when you sin, you don't lose your relationship, but your fellowship is broken. The psalmist in Psalm 66, 18 said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, if I hold on to sin, the Lord will not hear. God will not be in proper, you will not be in proper fellowship with God if there is sin in your life. There'll be broken fellowship. Uh, another consequence of your sin is you can bring discipline on yourselves. There are many examples throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, of people who brought severe discipline from God on themselves because of their sin. Think Ananias and Sapphira from a reading in the book of Acts. Hymenaeus and Alexander. There are others who are mentioned that were severely disciplined because of their sin. Why? Because God wanted to hurt them? No, because God, as a loving father, disciplines his children to bring correction in their lives. A third consequence of sin is broken relationships with other humans. Uh, your sin always impacts others. There's going to be some brokenness in your relationships if there's sin in your life that's not dealt with. What about eternal consequences? You ever thought about the fact that your sin can affect the eternity of others? Your sin can affect the eternity of others. Because if people around us, people in our workplace, in our school, in our neighborhood, know that we're believers, and they look at how we act and we're living sinful lives, that could keep them from coming to the Savior. And then finally, as it relates to what we're reading here about the judgment seat of Christ, your sin can affect your eternal reward. Why? When you sin, 
the Holy Spirit who indwells you is, is quenched or, or grieved. And when you quench or you grieve the Spirit, it's like you're cutting off the power, the power that you have to, to serve the Lord. You're going to lose opportunities when there's sin in your life. You're going to uh, lose the very desire to serve. And so your eternal reward, while your sin's not going to keep you out of heaven, your eternal reward is affected or impacted by your sin. We just need to be reminded that while our sin is forgiven as believers in Christ, there are consequences both now and later to our sin. But the judgment seat, the bema, is not about your sin. It's about what you've done. It's about how you've lived your life in Christ. It's about the fact that, that you've been saved and you've been justified and sanctified. What have you done with your salvation and with the justification and sanctification process that's happening in your life? Look again in, in uh, chapter 3. Look again at the process that Paul describes here, the explanation of what's going to happen in verses 12 through 15. Verse 12 he talks about the building materials, and you see there are two distinct qualities of building materials. There are gold, silver, and precious stones. Those things are, are, are lasting. Those things are permanent. And then there's wood, hay, and straw. Those are things that can be lost. Those are things that can, that can perish. Verse 13, he says, your work is going to be manifest. What does that mean? It means the nature of your work is going to be clear. It's not just what we do, it's the motive behind it. It's the proper conduct in doing the work. In Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 2, Solomon said, a man's way seems pure to him, but his motives are weighed by the Lord. It can look good on the outside, but if the motives are not proper, God is not going to bless that. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which you read this week in verse 5, said, when he comes, Jesus will expose the motives of our heart. So our reward at the BAME is not just based on the, the things that we did. We did this right and this right and this right. You can do all the right things for the wrong reasons. I like to think of it this way. When, when I think, I, I'm not careful sometimes as a very legalistic rule-keeping person. Sometimes I look at my work for Christ as a checklist. I need to do this and this and this and this. But listen, our service for the Lord should not be a checklist, but a love note. Let me say that again. If you're a Twitter person, this is a great tweet. Our service for the Lord should not be a checklist, but a love note. We serve him out of love for him and out of gratitude for, for what he's done for us. All right, look what he says. What is going to make our work manifest? What's going to show not just the work, but the motive behind the work? He says in verse 13, our work will be revealed by fire. Now, fire symbolizes two things in Scripture. It can either symbolize judgment and or it can symbolize holiness, specifically the holiness of God. The fire is going to test your work. And the word test means to test for the sake of approval. God wants to be able to approve the works that you're, you're, you have done, that you're standing there at the judgment seat presenting to him. God wants to be able to approve those things. In other words, your work is going to be held up to the holiness of God. That's what the fire represents. And as your work is held up to the holiness of God, if it survives the fire, it's approved by God. Now, we know the gold, silver, and precious stones are going to survive the fire. In fact, they're purified. They're made even better in the fire. But when you read these words, you might say, well, that, that's impossible. 
I can't be as holy as God. My work is never going to measure up. Well, clearly in verse 14, there are some that are going to receive a reward. It is possible. Listen, sinful men who have turned from sin can live holy lives. God has called us in his word. God has called us to holiness. That's the purpose of the sanctification process. We talked a lot about that in Romans. And if we go with the Lord in that sanctification process, if we let him do the work that he wants to do in our lives, we can live a holy life. God would not call us to holiness if it were not possible. He wouldn't do that just to frustrate us. It is possible for us, even as sinful men and women, to live a holy life. And it's possible for us to do works that when put to the test of his holiness, will survive. No, we're not perfect. But the more we allow the Spirit of God to work in us and to refine us, and the more we obey his voice, the more we will be able to live in holiness and we'll be enabled to serve and please the Lord in what we do. Verse 14 makes clear that there are some who will indeed experience reward but if we don't allow the Spirit to work in us, and if we don't participate in our sanctification process, if we don't seek to serve and please the Lord, then what we have is verse 15, which is a tough word. And it's a word that, that should cause us anxiety as believers. If we have not faithfully served and obeyed and followed Christ, if we're someone who has served, but really our service has been to, to serve ourselves, we've given the appearance of serving the Lord, but our real uh, motivation behind that is personal gain or popularity, the approval of men. If we're not serving faithfully, if we're serving for the wrong reasons, have the wrong motives, we're going to watch, verse 15 says, we're going to watch our life's accomplishments go up in flames and be destroyed. But again, this judgment is for those who are in Christ, those who are believers. So let me emphasize again, while our reward is destroyed, we don't lose our salvation. Look what he says in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, watch, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. He's still going to be a resident of heaven, but he's not going to have any reward. Imagine that you built a, a, a brand new house. And as you built that brand new house, um, you made the decision, even though you were given great advice, you made the decision not to spend the money uh, insuring your house. And imagine that not only did you not spend the money to insure your house, but you also didn't listen to the instruction given to you about your new uh, wood-burning stove or fireplace. And so one night you're at home and you're upstairs where your bedroom is on the second floor, you smell smoke, long story, your house is on fire, um, the, the first floor is completely engulfed, but to make it short, you simply uh, jump or climb out the window to your safety, and you watch your entire house burn to the ground with everything in it. All that you've accumulated in your life is completely burned and destroyed. Well, you're thankful that you're saved, but you're sad, and you have some regret about things that you didn't do that you should have done like taking out the insurance and knowing how to carefully maintain and, and have fires that are safe in your home. Oh, you're thankful because you're still alive, but you have nothing to show. John in 1 John 2:28 said this, And now, little children, abide in him, 
that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed, or some translations say not shrink back at his coming. Now, wait a minute. Sadness and regret in heaven? What about the scripture that says there'll be no more tears and no more suffering and, and no more sadness? Well, in, in that verse, in 1 John 2, 28, the grammar of the word shame, so you will not have shame at his coming, it points to a future act, not a continuous event. In other words, you're not going to spend all of your time in heaven. If you experience verse 15, your work is burned up, you have no reward, you're not going to spend all your time in heaven in shame and regret. The predominant emotion in heaven is joy, absolutely pure joy. You're not going to be sorrowful throughout all eternity. But understanding what Paul says here about suffering loss and understanding what John says in 1 John 2 about the concept of being ashamed, those two principles suggest that when Jesus comes, if we've not served him faithfully, there could be some measure of shame and there could be some measure of regret if we've not lived faithfully. You can almost liken the Bema to a graduation ceremony. Most people, when they graduate, whether it's high school or, or college, most people, when they graduate, have at least a, a little bit of disappointment and remorse. Why? Because they know they probably could have done better, probably could have achieved more. But really, that regret and remorse is overcome by the overwhelming emotion of joy. You're thankful that you graduated. You're, you're grateful for what you did achieve. But there is a bit of sorrow and regret and remorse. I try every year, usually around the end of the year, to do uh, an annual review, if you will. Sometimes I, I write it down. Um, I don't always write it down because it's hard to go back and read. Because as I do that review, as I think about my life, specifically in Christ over the last year, what I've accomplished, there are always some areas that I find that I've wasted some time and opportunities, that I've uh, foolishly squandered time and opportunities on useless things. And, and I think about people I didn't share with and people that I could have helped. And I'm grateful for what God has accomplished, but there's always a bit of regret. The good news is we don't have to wallow in the regret. Every day that Jesus tarries, every day that he gives us another day of life is an opportunity for us to improve our inspection report. I think of the words of Paul in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 when he said, be careful how you walk or how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise. Wise in what? That you know what the word of God says is to come for the believer. Be careful how you live, be wise about it, not as unwise men, but as wise. And then he says this, making the most of your time or the most of your opportunities because the days are evil. The time is coming when your life here on earth is going to be done. And after that, as a believer, you're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, at the judgment seat of Christ, and from what we read throughout Scripture, we know there are going to be different degrees of rewards. There are going to be in eternity different responsibilities and different opportunities of eternal service. And I'll just tell you real honestly, it may be hard to comprehend now, but it's going to matter to you when you stand before the Bema, before the judgment seat of Christ. God clearly, and you see this all through Scripture, you see this in the parables of Jesus, God clearly rewards faithfulness. And our rewards that we receive at the Bema seat 
glorify God. They're a reflection of our relationship with him and how he worked in us and through us. When we stand before Christ at the Bama seat, we're going to have a strong desire to want to glorify God, and our rewards glorify him. Another thing about the rewards that we receive is this, though. Our rewards are also a gift to him. You see, when we're in heaven and we're worshiping the Lord, we're we're overcome as we think about all that he's done for us and giving his life for us and giving us the gift of salvation, the ways that he's blessed us and used us, when we're reflecting on that and worshiping all that, in Revelation 4.11, it tells us that part of our worship will be to cast our rewards or cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus. See, we're not even going to keep those rewards. We're not going to want to keep those rewards. We're going to want to lay them all at the feet of our Savior because we recognize that we're nothing if we're not in him that there's nothing we could accomplish apart from him. Now, why does that matter? Imagine going to a birthday party of a, of a dear friend, and maybe there are many other people at that party as well, and when the time comes that, that the, the guest of honor is opening gifts, you realize that your gift is the smallest, cheapest gift that is there. And you could have done more. It's not the smallest, cheapest gift because that's all you could do. It's the smallest, cheapest gift because you didn't really put yourself into it. You could have done more. How are you going to feel when you recognize that others have expressed such greater uh, expressions of love and you could have done more? At the Bama seat, when you've received your rewards, the time is coming in your worship of Christ when you want to put your gifts at his feet as an expression of your love. Now, very quickly as as we wrap up, what is it exactly that we're going to be judged on? this. We've been given all the instruction. God's word says we have here everything we need for life and godliness. Now, if you want some specifics, um, I would say we're going to be judged on the Great Commission. That's responsibility in the work that God has given us as his people to make sure the gospel is going to all nations. We're going to be judged on that. We're going to be judged on how well we loved people, not only people within the body, within the family, but people in the world. We're going to be judged on how we responded to sin. When, when as a believer we sinned and the Spirit convicted us, did we deal with that sin? Did we confess that sin and, and repent of that sin? We're going to be judged on how well we followed the Spirit and lived a Spirit-controlled life. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Are those things evident in your life and my life? We're going to be judged on what instruction God has given us in His Word. And we want to be faithful to that. Well, Jesus, in the very last chapter of this Bible, of this book, in the last book, the book of Revelation, and the 22nd chapter, Jesus tells us this. Behold, I am coming soon. Listen, my reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I don't know how much longer Jesus is going to tarry. I don't know how many more days or or weeks or months or years he might give me, but he has warned you and he's warned me that he's coming soon. And he has a reward, and we're going to receive according to what we have done. Let's be careful in all the busyness and all the differing priorities and all the stuff in our world and in our lives, let's be careful not to lose sight of the fact that one day, as believers, we will stand before the Bama, the judgment seat of Christ, not to be judged for our sins, not to be condemned, but to be rewarded for what we have done. And let's recognize that those rewards will be very important in our ability to glorify the Lord and to give a gift 
to the Savior who's done so much for us. Would you pray with me? Let me ask you, as I do each week, just to take a moment and reflect on what God has spoken into your heart from his word. Maybe it's just a reminder to be aware, to not forget in the busyness of all the things that are happening in your life, to not forget that your priority is to serve the Lord faithfully. Maybe it's the recognition that while your sins are forgiven past, present, and future, maybe it's a recognition that your sins have not just some temporal, but some eternal consequences. It's going to be a phenomenal thing just to be in heaven and in the presence of the Lord. Jesus is enough. And yet we're encouraged in Scripture to remember that as believers, we are given the opportunity, the responsibility, the privilege to serve faithfully. And that God truly wants to reward our faithfulness. He takes great delight in saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And you and I are both going to want to hear those words. And, and, and you could sit right now and you could evaluate, you could beat yourself up over what you've not done, but remember, each day that God gives you is an opportunity to improve your inspection report. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. God, thank you for the reminder that we're to be busy serving you solely out of our love for you, not to get a good response from men, not to gain popularity, not for people to think we're a great person, but we're serving just because we love you. And Father, help us to be careful. We get so caught up in checking things off the list that we did this and we did that. God, help us remember that our service to you, Lord Jesus, our service to you is not a checklist, but a love note. It's out of response of our love for you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. Help us to live for you. For we ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.